good evening, listeners of the Juno Beach podcast. I uh, I understand it's been a while. I think this is the third episode in a row that's come after a month-long break that uh, one of us has said, wow, we were really busy, we're never doing that again. But uh, I, I do solemnly promise you that uh, Declan and I will actually get back to a schedule rather than just messaging each other, do you want to record? Uh, he isn't here today. He, uh, he left his recording equipment in another city. Uh, so... It's just me, but I've got a guess because I know everyone hates to have a podcast. That's just me. Um, but I want to I want to start off this year, this 2022, as a celebration of the life of somebody we lost last year. Um, because 2022 will be the first year in a century that we have not had His Royal Highness Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. And I want to highlight some of his most inspirational and really wholesome and, and uplifting quotes uh, that he said throughout his life. So, for example, one time there was a 13-year-old English child named Andrew Adams who told him that he wanted to be an astronaut, and Prince Philip replied, you could do with losing a little bit of weight. In 1966, he visited a hospital in the Caribbean, and he told his matron, you have mosquitoes, I have the press. At one point in Australia, His Royal Highness was demonstrated a piezometer, and he replied, a pissometer? Really a very fun and, and entertaining man. Upon hearing a performance at the Royal Variety by Tom Jones, he asked him, what do you gargle with? Pebbles? And the following day to the press, he says, it is very difficult at all to see how it is possible to become immensely valuable by singing what I think are the most hideous songs. He told some Cayman Islanders that they're all descended from pirates. Upon accepting a conservation award in Thailand in 1991, he told them, Your country is one of the most notorious centers of trading in endangered species. He called German Chancellor Helmut Kohl the Reichskanzler in Hanover in 1997. And in 2000, he said, People think there's a rigid class system here, but dukes have even been known to marry chorus girls. Some have even married Americans. And finally, he's once said in 1961, I've never been noticeably reticent about talking on subjects about which I know nothing, which I feel like really sums up this whole podcast and our vibe and the spirit and what we aim for here. So, uh, welcome to 2022. Um, rest in peace, uh, <laughs> Prince Philip. Um, and on with the episode. So I have brought someone on today. Uh, you know, usually when we have guests, it's because I'm a very good reply guy on Twitter. But today we're branching over into the Instagram world. This is uh, a, a very knowledgeable person who is, uh, I would say, an expert on specifically British, but uh, just parliamentary politics in general. Uh, it's history, uh, it's current affairs, how it works, um, etc. And so nonpartisan that despite having talked to him for a year, I still have no idea what he actually thinks about any issues. Uh, so when I make jokes about uh, Catholic emancipation in this episode, just know I'm the anti-Catholic racist. He's not. Um, so I would. I'm glad to introduce Hawken, aka World of Westminster, on Instagram. Uh, you can follow him there. Uh, if you want to plug yourself or anything before we get into the episode, or just say hi, go ahead. Uh, well, I'm delighted to be here, and after that sterling introduction, I can hardly wait to hear what I've got to say. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so, what are we doing today? Well, I figure we want to talk about the British Parliament, but I think we've done plenty of episodes about 
how much we hate Keir Starmer or how funny Boris Johnson is or how much the Tories suck. So we're going back in time. Uh, we're going back mm. in time to the Napoleonic era, uh, mm. of which there were one, two, three, four, five, maybe six. Well, I'll let you decide. Uh, general elections in the UK. Uh, we're going to go over them. We're going to go over the most important people uh, and their fancy titles. We're going to go over the ideologies. We're going to go over uh, how the elections went. Uh, and we're going to go over the surprising amount of prime ministers who died in office. <laughs> yes, yeah, quite a hazardous occupation, statistically. Not anymore, I don't think. But uh, at that point, it was basically like signing your own death warrant. So we start in 1802. Uh, so for some historical context... 1789, there's a revolution in France, right? They kill their king, everyone knows about that. Uh, and mm -hmm. they start becoming very aggressive towards other countries in Europe, uh, which leads to several coalitions banding together to defeat them. Uh, and most notably, by 1802, the War of the Second Coalition, uh, led by Britain, had defeated revolutionary France, and they were working on a peace treaty. Uh, but shortly after, Napoleon would cement himself, not just as first consul, but emperor, and take Britain on a pretty wild ride. <laughs> so, what's going mm -hmm. on uh, in Parliament in 1802? Well, it's uh, a fascinating time to be alive, actually. Uh, one of the significant things about the 1802 election is that that was the first one in which the whole sort of modern United Kingdom participated, because uh, you mentioned the French Revolution in 1789, of course, all very important. But that was also the catalyst for uh, the Irish Rebellion in 1798. And we call it the Rebellion because uh, it didn't succeed. Uh, it was put down by uh, uh, the British government, led by Irish Chief Secretary Lord Castlereagh, who will become very important later. And it was after that that the British Parliament thought uh, it was probably best to bring Irish politicians where they could keep an eye on them. And the manner in which this was achieved was the unification of the British and Irish parliaments into the single parliament of the United Kingdom. So it stopped being, so Ireland essentially stopped being a dominion and started actually being a part of the United Kingdom. So 1802 was the first um, election to this sort of all British parliament, so England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland all participating. So what's going on in Parliament? I hear you cry. I'm just remembering that uh, Prince Philip quote about subjects of which uh, he knew nothing. I sincerely hope I don't reveal myself to be a subscriber to that particular philosophy. That's just me, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, no, I never miss the chance for a bit of self-deprecation. Um, so the thing is, is that the Prime Minister up until 1801 was William Pitt the Younger who first became Prime Minister in 1783 at the tender young age of 24, which of course makes me wonder what exactly I'll be doing when I'm 24, because that's only five years away. Um, and what he was uh, a sort of blend of the two prevailing ideologies, which were the Tories, who were the more conservative wing, more associated with the aristocracy and the, um, and the higher levels of the gentry, uh, and their main opponents were the Whigs, that's Whigs with an H, uh, who were sort of associated not only with the slightly poorer landowners, but also with the emerging middle classes, like the industrialists and the mercantile class. Because this was an age in which capitalism, as we know it today, was sort of having its seeds sown, but, and Britain was sort of coming out of the Industrial Revolution into 
essentially the Victorian era, a different sort of technological revolution in a way. Um, so I realise that I've just given a load of historical context there, but oh well. Well, I actually, I want to add um, a little bit more just here, okay. because I think that just before we get into it, like throughout this, this episode, we'll find that uh, the king, His Majesty Charles III, uh, becomes a bit of a character. George. George, you're right. Charles is who we're going to get uh, within the next six months. There is no Charles III yeah. yet. Within the next six months. Sorry, yes. George III. His Majesty George III. Um, becomes kind of an important character. And I know he's about to become an important character in Pitt ending his first ministry. Um, and so I want to mm. note at this point that I'm sure, uh, you know, most of our, our listeners are British and Canadian. So you will hear things like, Her Majesty the Queen has appointed a new prime minister or, you know, she has confidence in this party or whatever, um, mm-hmm. which are really mm-hmm. antiquated terms. But, of course, in this era, like, obviously they mean nothing at that point, right? Whoever wins the election, whatever party wins the election is automatically, she just lets them in, right? But at this point, mm-hmm. political parties are more factions and groupings of ideologies mm-hmm. rather than organizations. Mm-hmm. So the king actually did have to navigate it, even as a constitutional mm-hmm. monarch, and appoint people to lead ministries according to the relative mm-hmm. abilities. So what we're about to find out um, and, of course, his actual confidence in their ability to govern. So, yes, we're about to find out that His Majesty was uh, kind of racist against Catholics, but what he's about to do was not overstepping his bounds. It was not really undue influence. So I just I want to point that out, that, that uh, the yeah. role of, of the yeah. monarchy was, was quite different back then. Anyways, please continue. Absolutely. No, that, that's an excellent point. And just one more thing there is that at this point in British history, it was entirely constitutionally acceptable for a prime minister to sit in the House of Lords. Unthinkable today, of course. Um, but back then we had quite a few aristocrats who, um, yes, ran the country from the House of Lords rather than the Commons, as we have now. Um, yes, so William Pitt the Younger, uh, whose father had also served as prime minister, of course, uh, had quite an eventful time as prime minister, which isn't really surprising when you consider I, that I think his career came to 20 years in total in Downing Street. Um, so he became Prime Minister in 1783 and at first had to pick up the pieces of the American Revolution and the fact that Britain had just lost one of its most important colonies in North America. The second Thankfully, most important. We... Second As, most of, of course, of, of course. course. Africa, How could I? Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. But we still had Canada because Canada was loyal and Canada knew what it wanted and what it wanted was to be under British control. And I'm sure it still wants that today. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So Pitt had to contend with that, but almost immediately after um, all those treaties were signed in North America, uh, the French Revolution happened, and this was a profoundly disturbing event for almost every other country in Europe because it challenged the idea of monarchy, challenged the idea of the divine right of kings, and in general it installed a more proletarian, that's a slightly anachronistic word, um, government in power in France. Um, and it didn't help that the new people in charge of France were both bloodthirsty and aggressive. So and middle class. Sort of civil war. <laughs> yes, the worst thing of all. Middle class, how could they? Um, so Pitt had to contend with that, and, you know, soon all of Europe was up in arms, and the War of the First Coalition happened, so Britain sort of got together this group of more conservative monarchies, which included uh, Prussia and Austria and Sweden, and we all ganged up on France and lost, which was deeply embarrassing. Um, 
And of course, this, as I said, also sparked off uh, the Irish Rebellion in 1798, and that in turn led to the unification of the two parliaments in London. Now, uh, the other sort of significant domestic issue of the day was, uh, well, intrinsic to the Irish question, actually, which was Catholic emancipation. So it's time to discuss uh, Catholic racism, a subject on which I know uh, Malcolm here is... Uh, deeply acquainted. Deeply, <laughs> deeply. Uh, I, I care deeply about uh, anti-Catholic racism um, and its... Uh, you mean perpetuating it? Yeah, yeah, of course, yes. of course. Being a... Uh, uh, <laughs> this is... By the way, dear employers, future employers, this is all ironic. Please continue. No, uh, yes, please don't cancel me either. <laughs> yeah. I have a good, I have a good Catholic surname, so yeah. So uh, Pitt wanted, in fact, to do this thing which uh, Malcolm probably wants to go back in time and slap him for, which was to emancipate the Catholics. There were significant social and legal restrictions on them. Uh, I can hear Malcolm muttering good in the background, uh, which largely meant they couldn't vote, they couldn't uh, own very much land, their ability to pursue things in the judiciary was very limited too, and of course they faced sort of mass casual discrimination, especially from the sort of Protestant elites in the colonial administration in Ireland. Um, but William Pitt, having put down the Irish Rebellion and sort of brought their parliament into Westminster, wanted to create this and wanted to emancipate them. But this went, you know, Catholic discrimination had been a thing in English life since, you know, the Reformation in the 16th century. And so His Majesty George III was understandably not very keen on Catholic emancipation. And, you know, it became a sort of sticking point between him and Pitt. And as Malcolm noted, the Prime Minister at the time not only had to balance uh, the interests of Parliament and what MPs wanted, but also what the King wanted. So ultimately, after the Act of Union was passed, Pitt attempted to get the King on side to sign an Emancipation Bill. The King said he wouldn't, and so Pitt was dismissed as Prime Minister, which was a rather um, unceremonious end to 18 years in office. He's a young uh, guy at that point. So the new ministry... <laughs> I mean, what was he, like, 50? Not even. Exactly. 45. No, I, I I think he died before he was 50, actually. Yeah, well, he, we'll get to that. But I, I might think be wrong. Six in the next uh, election, but... And I think he spent almost half his life as Prime Minister, which is quite strange, actually. Um, yeah. But yes, the King instead appointed Henry Addington, who had previously served in Pitt's cabinet, but could be sort of relied upon not to make trouble. One of Addington's sort of key self-promotions um, self was that he could secure a peace with France, which was quite important. By now they were in the Second Coalition and were now fighting against Napoleon, uh, who had uh, proclaimed himself first consul in 1799, which I missed out earlier. Um, so Addington, Henry Addington, uh, his name was, who represented the lovely rural constituency of Devizes, which is one of the most boring places in Wiltshire, uh, and that's saying something, um, was immediately sort of assigned to try and make peace with Napoleon. And he did, he did. He did manage to secure the Treaty of uh, Emiens, or Emiens, uh, to give the proper English pronunciation, uh, which sort of settled things for the moment, but it was very uneasy because, you know, Napoleon was still interested in expansionism 
and he had sort of acquired a reputation as um, not necessarily a liberal, but a bit of a radical, you know, with his new penal code. And generally, ideologically, he posed quite a significant threat to the other European monarchies. Unless you're a woman. Um, unless you're a woman, but we don't have to worry about women in this timeline, so... There was also, slightly tangentially, a woman named Hester Grenville, who I believe was Pitt the Elder's sister, but she was married to one of the Grenvilles, so her brother, nephew, husband and son all served as Prime Minister. That is so, a very weird, incestuous yes. uh, single family member she had. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so Grenville, uh, I believe, even though he was a Whig, was a cousin of, of Pitt the Younger. Yeah. In some ways, there wasn't a lot to ideologically differentiate the Tories and the Whigs at this point. It was more sort of about origins, you know. It's a bit like the yeah. Republicans and Democrats in the late 20th century. So more in about my, yeah, social class. In my research, I found that there were, like, so for example, the Foxites, who were, like, the main opposition in, mm -hmm. in 1802, mm -hmm. are actually, mm -hmm. like, somewhat ideological. Like, you find them being... Yeah. Like, they've got radical, radical friends, they've liberal. got Republicans uh, among their midst which isn't even a, mm. a, a viable mainstream position in the UK today. Um, <laughs> Not at all. Uh, yeah. You know, abolitionism is kind of popular among Tories and Whigs. They just don't do it. Um, but, mm. like, there's radicals among yes. them. So, like, I think the, the Foxites specifically, who are the main opposition in this general election, yeah. are, are a bit more yeah. radical. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so when I use the terms conservative for the Tories and radical slash liberal for the Whigs, they are very very loose yeah um yeah so henry addington having sort of got his peace and you know become prime minister wanted a general election and the thing is is that in this era uh, the franchise was extremely restricted it depended on the constituency that one lived in um but usually it was restricted to property owners or the freedmen or in some cases uh, tenants of the local lords could vote but the ballot wasn't secret, and so the Lord was usually able to blackmail or coerce people into voting for his patron. You know, there was this sort of very cyclical hierarchy um, in each constituency. And it was known, for instance, that in some cases, electors would sort of form groups and sell the constituencies to the highest bidder. Um, and sometimes uh, candidates for the constituency would bribe the electors with... Um, money is a bit prosaic but you know with wine or orgies or whatever which i think frankly is something we should bring back um it's in like, order to secure so the seat like, i don't know why you wouldn't you know it's sort of like how during the hungarian united opposition primary i just like walked into a shakesha vehar <laughs> polling station with 110,910 uh ballots <laughs> filled out for Pietro and at 3 a.m right like i don't mm. know why you don't just ballot stuff like i do oh well they did ballot stuff too it's just like if you're going to commit electoral fraud you may as well do it on an industrial scale do you not think or have fun doing it no i guess you have a point yeah exactly yeah, like so the party, mm, yeah fair enough the real definition of a, what a political party should be is the party they throw to get your votes yeah capital p party yeah absolutely um so yeah, so the whole process was qu quite corrupt, but there was a genuine sort of um, mandate that could be awarded by the voting public in Britain. And so Addington's main selling points were that 
he was already in charge and, you know, stability was quite a good thing because the dismissal of Pip, you know, you can't, you don't get rid of someone after 18, 19 years in office and then that's it. There was a bit of a, a shock going through British political circles. So Addington was sort of presenting himself as both a successor to Pitt, but also had sort of succeeded where Pitt has failed in securing peace with France. Um, so the election sort of proceeded along those lines, and as Malcolm said, the principal opposition in Parliament were the Foxites, who were essentially uh, the main bulk of the Whig party, if you can call it a party. And they were generally quite radical. They were led by and named after Charles James Fox, who is, in fact, one of the most important statesmen of the era. Um, he was Pitt's lifelong rival. Um, but he was a very controversial figure because of his liberalism. He was very much in favour of Catholic emancipation, which was, in, as we said, okay. you know, <laughs> an issue with the king and everything. But he was uh, also in favour of things like a constitutional right of assembly, which um, the government wasn't too keen on because uh, they essentially feared a French revolution happening in Britain. Um, and he was also in favour of parliamentary reformers in extending the franchise and getting rid of some of the corruption. Um, but his biggest crime was, in fact, being in fact visited Paris which didn't go down that well with many sections of the voting public because it did smell slightly of treason. Yeah, so I'm reading here um, that he sort of interpreted the French Revolution as like a late continental imitation of Britain's own glorious revolution. Uh, mm, yeah, but, although the know, interesting when, thing about the glorious revolution yeah, is that it sort of, yeah, Catholic. it wasn't quite as changing. No, it wasn't. And, and when your response to the storming of the Bastille is how much the greatest event it is that ever happened in the world and how much the best. Um, I, I think, like, no, fair enough. Like, French Revolution, initially not that bad, but uh, I, I can see how some Brit bongs would be pissed at you for that. Brit bongs, I see. Oh, I was sorry, wondering sorry, when sorry, I, I get to hear that word. You can, you can call me a... <laughs> no, no, it's, if you want. it's quite funny. No, if I really wanted to insult you, I'd call you American. Um, I would, I would, I would die. Bro, I'd be fuming. <laughs> All right, greater American. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Fox was a sort of quite controversial figure because he was popular enough in Parliament and in certain sections of the country that the government couldn't sort of silence him into opposition. But he was also espoused enough radical ideas to have people worried. So the election was essentially Addington versus Fox, and there was also a subgroup called uh, the Pittites, and you can deduce that they were named after Pitt the Younger. So after his ministry fell, he sort of retreated to the backbenchers and sort of formed his own group, and they largely supported uh, the Addington ministry. But Pitt also wanted to keep a distance, which, you know, later we'll find out was kind of canny manoeuvre, because uh, Addington ended up of course, also falling from power in quite a spectacular fashion. So the election essentially came down to uh, the Tories, the bulk of the Tories, led by Addington, also known as the Addingtonians. We were terribly imaginative with our political factions. Uh, the Foxites, led by Fox, and the Pittites, led by Pitt. Um, and the main issues of the election were France, 
and Catholic emancipation. And sort of within those, there are a couple of sub-issues. So for instance, on a sort of interesting historical trivia note, well, depending on how you define interesting, but I think if you're me, it's very interesting. Um, Pitt had actually introduced the world's first sort of modern income tax in order to cover the costs of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and that wasn't very popular because most of the time taxes were applied on goods in Britain. Uh, taxes were applied on goods. Um, but he introduced an income tax which essentially gave the Treasury breathing space because these wars were hideously expensive considering that it took seven coalitions to defeat Napoleon for good. Um, so taxation was another issue because it wasn't hugely popular. Uh, parliamentary reform, that was another issue which was sort of linked uh, to the emancipation and civil liberty liberties issue. Um, and yes, actually civil liberties itself, I, civil liberties, I can't speak today, um, was also a huge issue, what with the constitutional right of assembly being debated and the balance the government wanted to strike with keeping the population suppressed, but also not crushing them too much into the dirt because then they might have a revolution. It was, you know, the more I look back on history, the more admiration I have for these, for the governments of the time, because I think this was probably the era when Britain was closest to having its own revolution, but it didn't. Which is uh, uh, good for George III, I guess. Then he can go <laughs> pee blue all he wants with no one stopping him. Well, exactly. Not that he had uh, much time to enjoy his absolute power in his later years, as we'll find out. No, no, of course. So, um, uh, it's funny, I have, I don't have Henry Addington written in my notes, I have the Viscount Sidemouth. Um, but, uh... Viscount Sidmouth, yes. Yeah, I was well, Sidmouth, he, sorry, he, was, he was a noble who loved his premiership. I think the only one went to in here... November. Yeah, I think the only one in our list who isn't like a lord is Spencer Percival, but that's just of course because he doesn't have enough time uh, to become one. Um, so, eighteen oh two. Percival, yes. Yeah, Addington kind of yeah. blows it well, away. As, as we find out, there's a special reason why he wasn't a noble. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My bad. Shouldn't have done it. Um, so Addington does quite well in this election. Hmm. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Addington does extremely well. The voting public were, you know, uh, the uneasiness of the peace meant that everyone was sort of aware that war with France could break out at any point. And generally, you know, uh, they wanted stability and they wanted someone who could be relied upon to protect the peace, but also protect the civil order prevailing in Britain. And so, you know, if you wanted stability, you vote for the incumbent and the incumbent was Addington. And so his sort of group, which 183 seats out of 658 in the House of Commons, um, and that's a majority of more than 100, and an absolute landslide by today's terms. So, yeah, he was uh, allowed to stay on as Prime Minister, and now that he had his own mandate, you know, it's fairly clear that uh, he had the confidence of the public. Um, the Fox won 269 seats, so enough to sort of pose a significant opposition bloc in Parliament, but 
they didn't quite have the votes they needed to actually win power because most of the public saw them as a little too radical. And the Pittites won six seats, which, you know, a tiny group, but as Malcolm said, the factions were very fluid. Um, and as we can see, it nonetheless, was well the election did produce. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it definitely produced a handsome majority for the Addington ministry. Mm-hmm. So uh, the king kept Addington in power and Britain proceeded on with its peace. Yeah, so um, I, I sort of see these next two elections as kind of one and the same, just like a continuing period. But there's a lot of instability uh, in the interim, which I want to talk about, because I, mm, I find it yeah. all very interesting. So, yeah, yeah um, Viscount Sidmouth, at this point, does end up resigning, uh, partially because Napoleon shows up uh, mm. in 1804 and immediately embarks on a very successful campaign throughout Europe. Obviously, we end up beating him, but, uh, mm. you know, at this point, it, uh, it goes the way decade, every yeah. single war involving Britain does, which is that... We end up losing, and mm-hmm. when I say we, I mean the British Empire, which, you know, we were part of as Cana- Canadians. But, like, we end up losing yeah, in the first good. three years, and then we, it's like, good. take some time to collect ourselves, and then we come back and, like, win the last few battles decisively, mm-hmm. and that's enough, right? And so we're in this early period where we're just yeah, exactly pissed on by Napoleon. Uh, so Sidmouth has so, resigned, and also because yeah. he just wasn't a very good parliamentarian. Uh, I think a lot of people sort of remarked that he was kind mm-hmm. of boring in his speeches. And so even though... Pitt, yeah. who was also a Tory, had, um, you know, only six people. Yeah, as you mentioned, the, and as I mentioned, the, the factions were quite fluid, and he was just not only a, a masterful orator, but very good at navigating Parliament. Um, so, yeah, yeah exactly. Pitt returns uh, as Prime Minister, but he suddenly dies of alcohol poisoning uh, in 1806. <laughs> Lol. Yeah, L. Leading to, uh, <laughs> as we previously mentioned, a Whig... Uh, Lord Grenville taking over as Prime Minister mm. and forming something called the Ministry of All the Talents. Uh, I think in mm. modern days we would just call this a coalition government. Um, well, but, a sort of grand coalition. Yeah, a yeah. grand coalition of like the main opposition because this was a national unity government to prosecute the mm. war against Napoleon. It included the Foxites mm. and it also included mm. Viscount Sidmouth. Um, mm. But they, they, and they, it kind of failed though initially because they tried to actually negotiate a peace with Napoleon, which did not work. Um, and there was reluctance mm. among all of them to work with uh, Fox, um, which weakened yeah. the coalition. And so Lord Grenville asked the king to call another election, which he does, um, which Fox dies in the middle of. Um, so why don't we talk <laughs> yes. about why don't we talk about this a little bit? So the eight, the eighteen oh six general election, yeah. Um, yeah. So as you say, it was we sort of have a parallel of instability here. It was obviously deeply unstable in Europe because uh, Napoleon, uh, the Peace of Orleans had just collapsed in 1803 and Britain and France were at war again. And of course, there was intense political turmoil at home. Yeah, so Addington was widely reputed as being a bit of a bore. And the thing is that his other major selling point, which was uh, securing the peace with France, had of course absolutely gone out of the window when Britain was back, uh, back at war with France. And of, that actually damaged him in the eyes of a lot of MPs because, you know, he'd been elected to keep the peace and he hadn't. So it sucks to be him. Uh, the sort of cherry on the top was that his health was uh, declining. Um, 
So in the end, facing sort of both political and internal pressure, he resigned in 1804 and yeah, he was replaced by William Pitt. Uh, and there was a sort of unspoken agreement between Pitt and the King that they wouldn't discuss Catholic emancipation. But they could both work with that because, of course, there were more important things to think about than uh, Catholic rights at this point. Um, and then Pitt died, of course. Uh, and then, yes, yeah, so the Grenville Ministry is possibly one of the most interesting in British history, despite the fact that it lasted, you know, about a year and not much more. Um, partly because it was sort of the model for this, for the idea of the Grand Coalition. Uh, to show off my Canadian knowledge, it was a bit like the, you know, the Grand Coalition of, uh, what's his name, Brian Mulroney in the 1984 general election, Ooh. when he, he sort of swept the whole of Canada and won seats in every province. Yeah, lots of points for me, please. That was very um, good. <laughs> thank See, I was you. thinking of Robert Brian, which is the only time we've actually had a... Uh... Uh, unity government like that but fair enough mm, yeah so the ministry of all the talents was called that because it supposedly contained all the talents uh, of the day so charles james fox was slightly controversially appointed the foreign secretary and the king sort of allowed that on two grounds one that fox as part of a coalition couldn't do too much damage and the second that um a foreign secretary, of course, would mostly be occupied with uh, running the war, and so he wouldn't really have time to stir up any trouble at home. Um, so, yeah, it was a national unity government designed to bring the country through the war. Um, but meanwhile, over on the continent, you know, a lot of things were happening. Napoleon had crowned himself Emperor of the French, I believe, by this point. And you notice he calls himself of the French, which is very clever, because that means uh, his jurisdiction extends outside France. Um, and I, I've always thought that was quite amusing because, you know, you don't really get to claim to be liberal and radical and all these things he did claim to be and then crown yourself emperor. I, I do I do laugh at that sometimes. You know, um, Bonapartism uh, is a legitimate <clears throat> critique made by uh, Marx and other socialists, Marxists, <clears throat> of, yeah, this type of uh, so-called progressive who takes a uh, <clears throat> military type of guy who takes advantage of a social mm. movement to further their own uh, uh yeah their own power yeah. yeah yeah and yeah well that sort of sums it up really yeah um and so meanwhile the war of the third coalition had begun which wasn't going well um and in fact it was the battle of austerlitz in 1805 right at the end of 1805 which was uh france versus uh the allied part of russia and austria uh, which was a crushing french victory um uh, uh, may have in fact contributed to Pitt's death because he died the next month and there is a suggestion that the sort of shock of that might have done something for his health. So yeah, so by the time of this general election Grenville is running a government that is inherently unstable um, but he had the king's backing uh, which was uh, always a bonus in, in this era um, and yeah so Grenville, of course, also had the sort of stability factor that uh, Addington um, had boasted. But, uh, you know, the country was in a pretty grim mood because France was keeping to win, as you say. We were getting pissed on by Napoleon. Um, I just thought of a really rubbish joke that I was going to say, like Napoleon was saying, we, 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 
So oh, excellent. Yes, but it also means piss. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really quite something. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I love it. I love um, it when uh, people speak the Quebecois language. <laughs> oh, yes, sorry. Uh, when I say the French language, I mean Quebecois. C'est le monde Québécois. Nous parlons Québécois. Uh, je ne parle pas oh, Québécois. Fair enough, fair enough. Parce que je déteste la France. Ah, me too. Uh, me yeah. Too. I, ne I never studied French, <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah, so 1806 was a wartime election, uh, which, of course, all, uh, unlike 1802, which was the interesting thing. Um, and so policy towards France was much more dominant here. Civil issues weren't really given a hearing. Well, of course, um, we also do have to think about um, this new issue, which is the revival of English magic under the tutelage of Mr. Norrell. <laughs> Yes, we do have to think about that. Yes, a massive, massive issue in a number of constituency contests. Yes, mm. exactly. And specifically so, the uh, the political ascendancy of Sir Walter Pole among the Tories at that point. Mm, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yes, of, of, of course. I need to read that book. Um, then I'll come on again. <laughs> yes, there you go. We could talk um, about the politics of that. Well, I'm sure it sounds extraordinarily interesting from what you know, you've told me. You know, there's actually, this, doing the research for this episode has gotten me little uh, memories from that book. Like, uh, you know, they mention uh, later on the Duke of Portland being Prime Minister, but they mention how nice mm -hmm. his house is and how they keep him on as Prime Minister, not because he can govern, because he's off his mind on laudanum the entire time, but just because he has a very nice house <laughs> with a very well-stocked wine cellar, so they like to hold their meetings there. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. that's as good as a reason as any, I exactly. suppose. Exactly, and now I understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so even Catholic emancipation was only brought up in the context of the war, and that Irishmen couldn't become senior officers in the army and the navy. Um, but, and, and Sorry, I say Irishmen, because, of course, like 90% of Irish people were Catholic at this point. Um, and in sort of economic terms, again, it was the Napoleonic Wars that were absolutely draining the public purse. But Britain was actually quite fiscally well organised during the war, partly thanks to Castlereagh, Viscount Castlereagh, who sort of organised the widespread funding. You know, people were quite willing to pay their taxes and also uh, even to sometimes allow soldiers to billet in their homes um, as sort of, sort of an act of patriotism. So Britain was actually quite well organised, even though financially it was, you know, crippling in some ways. Um, so, yeah, so Grenville, I think the mistake that Grenville made, or rather it was a mistake in hindsight, uh, was that uh, he again promised uh, to try and negotiate a peace with France. He hadn't managed to do that before the election, but he was sort of... Um, campaigning on that issue again despite the fact of course is that what was partly ended Addington's career was the broken broken promises and uh, the electorate doesn't like people electing people with broken promises as I'm sure the uh, recent Canadian general election will mm. attest to um, so uh, yes the talents went into the election quite strong because they had most of the major figures united around them and the government had the support of the king and generally you know it should be an easy win because it wasn't really a very partisan election the 
only faction who had in fact decided to sit the ministry out was the Pittites, again. Um, now, we, we still call them the Pittites because that's who they were closest to ideologically. Um, but Pitt had died and the leadership of that faction had largely fallen to the Duke of Portland. They were still mostly all Tories, even though, of course, some Tories had crossed over to support the Talons. Um, but, however, the election was not the landslide that Grenville had hoped for and had, in fact, expected. Uh, because um, when it was initially formed, the ministry had about 400 MPs on side. And given everything was in his favour, electorally speaking, you know, he could have expected 450, maybe even 500 MPs. But he didn't. He won 431 seats, which, whilst an increase, was not, you know... And in fact, the Pittite opposition vote held up extraordinarily well in uh, an awful lot of seats. And it also left the Duke of Portland in a much stronger position than expected, because it meant that um, with they had 227 MPs, uh, and that was, you know, if there was if the ministry fell apart and one of the factions of uh, the talents defected to support the opposition, then that was it. So yes, Lord Grenville did not do as well as he hoped. Um, but of course, uh, the one of the things during the campaign was uh, the death of Charles James Fox. Um, who, yes, as you, as you said, just randomly decided to die in September, which was like a couple of days before the election was formally called. Um, and given his sort of intelligence, because um, there is a sort of consensus that Fox could have had a much more successful ministerial, ministerial career if the king hadn't hated him. Um, hmm. uh, the... Uh, his death actually damaged the ministry quite badly, and even though the ministry went on to win the election, arguably Fox sort of left a vacuum, not only in the Foreign Office, but in the sort of wider philosophical strand, because, as as we said, the, the sort of glue holding the, the talents together was very, very weak. Um, and, you know, uh, so, yes, basically what I'm saying is the ministry came out of the election with a win, but not a decisive one, and it had lost one of its most senior officials. So, arguably, uh, the 1806 general election wasn't really that much of a success for Lord Grenville, because he well, won, yeah. but not much of a victory. And then it does go badly for him uh, mm. shortly after. So, uh, he kind of loses the support uh, of the king when he and mm. the Whigs try to emancipate Catholics. Yeah, not Irish people, because it's notable that Lord Wellington was Irish. He was just Protestant. Mm. Um, but so yeah, yeah, he and the Whigs tried to emancipate Catholics, uh, specifically not as wide-ranging as what Pitt wanted to do, but to allow them to become mm. officers uh, in the Army and the Royal Navy. Um, mm. The king asked for like a written declaration that he's not going to try and emancipate them, and he says no. Yeah. Uh, and so His Majesty asked the Duke of Portland, uh, who we've mentioned to... Uh, and he, of course, had been Prime Minister, in fact, before Pitt the Younger. Right? This guy's ancient. Yeah. Guys, ancient. Yes, this is this is the comeback to end all comebacks. Yeah, exactly. Like he's been gone for like thirty years now. Um, mm. So yeah, he'd been prime minister before seventeen eighty. His Majesty asked Duke of Portland to form a new uh, ministry, um, and so the election in eighteen oh seven was uh, held to confirm the Duke of Portland's position, and he won I think by three seats. But his anti-Catholic policies mm. did kind of prove popular. 
Right. So in 1807, uh, yes, the Ministry of All Talents had collapsed after Grenville and his ministers attempted to pass another Catholic Emancipation Bill. Um, but what George III did was he asked for written confirmation from each and every cabinet minister uh, that they wouldn't bring up the issue again, because he said no. He was fervently opposed throughout his reign to Catholic emancipation. Um, and I, I think the point about sending uh, the letter to every cabinet minister was that he had something to brandish in their face if one of them subsequently attained higher office. But they all refused, and so the entire cabinet resigned. And then the Ministry of All the Talents just crumbled. I think it's a rather ironic legacy for Lord Grenville, who, you know, sort of swept in as the great unifier. He brought together the Tories and the Whigs, who had been rivals for centuries. Um, and he's not really remembered for anything except uh, the fact that his parliament lasted less than half a year. Because, as you say, the king appointed the old and anti-diluvian Duke of Portland yeah. as prime minister, and his ministry was formed almost entirely of Tories. And the house that had been elected in 1806 had been elected to give a majority to the talents. And so Portland's ministers wanted to call an election so that the new parliament would be more sympathetic to this large Tory government. Um, and so, yeah, just 138 days after the 1806 parliament was summoned, a fresh general election was ordered. This is it's Justin Trudeau that... moment. <laughs> I do want to note, which is kind of interesting, like you do sort of see like, you know, your factions here, but even though, you know, you Brits are really averse to it now, uh, the Duke of Portland <laughs> does end up leading a minority government here. <laughs> Stop, you'll give me a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, although his sort of, um, his sort of like hardcore Tories were the minority, but a lot of the crossbench was quite sympathetic to him. A bit like your car apartment in Canada, and the last one, because they're not that much different. There you go. Um, so, so yeah, um, so the campaign sort of uh, came down to Portland versus Grenville, because Grenville, having resigned as Prime Minister, now sort of found himself leader of the Whig Party, except the Whigs were now disorganised and, you know, they were racked by a lot of infighting, um, whereas the Tories were actually quite united for this election. Um, now, Grenville was hugely unpopular by this point, because he hadn't achieved peace with France, and he hadn't achieved Catholic emancipation either. And it was a controversial issue. The fact he hadn't done it sort of um, weakened his image quite considerably. The Ministry of All the Talents, again, that weakened his image because of the way it just collapsed. And yeah, so generally things did not look good for Grenville, but things did look rather good for Portland. One of the things that Portland did during the 1807 general election was... Um, he actually campaigned, which was not usually something you saw in the elections of this era. You mm. just sort of turned up and voted. And one of the things he did was he campaigned negatively and accused Duke of Portland, other pro-emancipation of being puppets of the Vatican, which is a hugely serious accusation to make in wow. century Britain. And it's funny <laughs> yes. to see, like, the Whigs doing that when... Wow, okay. That yeah. is something I had not so, learned. Oh, well. It's, it was actually quite a significant factor in the election because, you know, that sort of implied that Grenville and his Whigs were putting the Pope above the crown. And, you know, this was actually, you know, really, really serious. And it terrified, or 
it's been suggested that it terrified a lot of electors into supporting the Tories, because otherwise they'd have a papist government in power. Um, so Portland, in some ways, actually, uh, you know, ran his campaign quite well. He was quite conservative by the standards of the previous prime ministers. He opposed Catholic emancipation. He was a firm supporter of the divine right to rule as well as the monarch's traditional powers. He felt that the Whigs were sort of too interested in transferring further power from uh, the Crown to Parliament. And, of course, his main uh, sort of bank of his campaign was that he could defeat uh, France. He did not go down the Grenville and Addington route of promising he could secure a peace. Um, he just said, you know, there's going to be a war and I'm the one who can form the coalition to lead you through it. And this paid off handsomely. Um, so the Tories themselves only sort of won a minority of seats, but there was a quite significant sort of Conservative crossbench elected, and they generally supported um, Portland. So his ministry was, you know, it, it basically had a majority. You know, it, it was a sort of de facto majority government. Not that you know about those in Canada. Of course, yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so he, he had a lot of traditionalist rhetoric, that was very appealing, and he was also perceived as being quite honest, even though the allegations against Grenville and the Whigs probably weren't true, um, but he was perceived as honest, uh, which is always funny. Yes. Um, so the election did produce quite a convincing mandate for him, and uh, I'd just like to note an interesting constituency level result which is that in Yorkshire, so in the, in these days, uh, each county uh, elected um, two MPs to Parliament, known as Knights of the Shire, which is a rather nice title. Nice. And in the seats of Yorkshire, there was a quite big camp um, where one of the candidates was William Wilberforce, uh, the noted abolitionist. Mm. Um, but the interesting thing about that campaign was that it cost £225,000 in total, and that's twenty one million pounds sterling today. I have no idea what the exchange rate is, but the point is that's a lot of money to spend on two seats. Uh, you said twenty one million pounds. Yeah. Yeah. So to our Canadian listeners, that would be about thirty five million dollars. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Wilberforce is actually interesting. I mean, not only is he Scotchman, uh, mm. saying it like that's that because I'm doing my uh little eighteen oh seven LARP, but also mm. um <laughs> he has been brought up for all my Torontonians, uh, as a replacement for the name of Dundas Street, which is one of our biggest streets, and it's named after a Scottish oh, politician right. who yeah. was a big slave owner. Uh, mm. And so when people have protested against we've decided to rename it, we don't know what, but when people have protested mm. against renaming it, it's like, well, it's our part of our heritage. And so mm. that's been brought up as renaming it for Wilberforce, because there's a Scottish politician okay. who is a big yeah. abolitionist. So there's your little Canadian yeah. connection. Yeah. Ah, well, I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, I didn't know that as a local issue, but yeah. uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, this was one of the elections and rules was uh, elected to Parliament, although, as I said, he represented Yorkshire, <laughs> yeah. not Scotland. <laughs> um, yeah, it's the one riding in Scotland. <laughs> well, that's another interesting point, is that I think Scotland had 45 seats, but such was the sort of... Um, uh, arbitrary nature of the sort of allocation system that Cornwall had 44 so 
they basically had the same level of representation even though Cornwall was smaller and basically no one lived there. So I'm thinking that Southern Ireland had eight. Because if there are 650 seats now and the only difference in territory is that the rest of Ireland is going Well, out. it wasn't accorded to population. You see, the king could enfranchise districts at will, mm. ridings, as you call them. So we have a lot of what we call rotten boroughs, which are small places where population changes yes. hadn't been accounted for in boundary reviews. There's a very good no uh, Blackadder episode about that one. Mm, Dunny on the Wold, yes, yeah. exactly. That uh, The thing is, is that not much of that is made up, and there was a genuine constituency in Suffolk called mm. Dunwich, which by um, the time of its abolition, which was in 1832, uh, most of it had actually fallen into the sea, because <laughs> the town had been on the coast in the Tudor era, and it just wasn't there, but it wow. didn't um, change the boundaries. There you go. Uh, uh, yes, the other thing about the election, so Portland was large and in charge, um, but some radicals were elected, and that's radicals with a capital R. So these were sort of distinct from the Whigs, in that their philosophy was more radical, but they also largely came from different class backgrounds. So as I said, the Whigs were more sort of landowners and um, even a little aristocratic, whereas the radicals largely did come from the um, sort of like the industrial, not working, but the industrial mercantile classes. And Juan Francis Burdett uh, was elected in Westminster, and he was the one who went on to uh, promulgate the first successful Catholic Emancipation Bill, although that's not for another 20 years. But, so, him and Wilberforce, I think, were probably the sort of biggest non-ministerial personalities in the Parliament elect in 1807. Okay. So, um, I guess the war's still going at this point, but uh, uh, yes, we now have a, a very uh, sort of strong return for the Tories. Uh, mm. You know, even though their 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 uh, technical majority over the, the Whigs is only by three seats, uh, you know, as mm. you mentioned, a lot of those seats that sit in the middle of them are... Uh, mm. you very know, pro-Tory. Very yeah. pro-Tory. And so uh, we're actually going to, for the listeners, uh, cut the episode off here. We're going to do a second part just so that this can be uh, at a, a more listenable length. Um, mm. I think 55 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever this is going to be. Uh, is pretty good. Uh, we're just going to keep talking, but uh, for you, you'll get in the second episode a day or two later. Um, or maybe at the same time. I don't know. I don't know. I don't <laughs> care, really. So, um, in any case, uh, you can follow uh, Hawken at, at World of Westminster on Instagram. Uh, W-O-R-L-D-O-F-W-E-S-T. Uh, is it Westminster or is it Westminster? Minster. Minster, okay, M-I-N-S-T-E-R. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you can do that. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at JunoBeachPod, at J-U-N-O-B-E-A-C-H-P-O-D. And, of course, if you liked what you heard, please follow us because it helps other people hear this too. Um, mm. And, yeah, Happy New Year. Uh, Declan will return on the 8th. I hope that uh, when we do a part two uh, of this series, we can have him back because he's funnier than me. Uh, and we'll talk about the Pax Britannica. Um, yeah, so yeah, we'll do that. Um, but, uh, catch us in the next episode to hear about 1812 and 1818. Uh, but until then, I've been Malcolm and this has been your Juno. Thank you very much.